a very warm welcome to the German Historical Institute. My name is Andreas Christrich, I'm the director. It's a great pleasure for me to uh, welcome you to this uh, panel discussion this evening, which is the, uh, the final event mm -hmm. uh, in uh, our joint Leo Beck and uh, Institute of German Historical Institute London uh, series, lecture series on um, on the legacy of the left in Israel, which we had from yeah, autumn uh, last year to mm -hmm. early, early this year, and which we now sort of finish with this uh, panel discussion. It was a, a joint, as, as over the past years, it was a joint enterprise between the Leopold Institute and the Institute here. And um, this evening will be chaired by Daniel Wildmann, I will at the Leopold Institute here in London, and I will hand over to him, and he will introduce the panels. Daniel. Okay. Thank you very That's much, it. Andreas, and I'm also very happy to welcome you all here to the panel, the Legacy of the Left in Israel, which is um, the last event of this season's European Leopold Institute lecture series. As Andreas has already told you, my name is Daniel Wildmann. I'm the director of the LBI London. And the series is organized jointly by us, the LBI, and by Andreas Gestrich and the German Historical Institute. I'm very glad to welcome you here at the German Historical Institute. And my thanks go back to Andreas and his team of the German Historical Institute, because um, it is a real pleasure um, to have these lecture series with you, and we're already thinking about the next one in the next year. As you know, um, the topic, the legacy of the left in Israel, 1967 to 2017, is quite political. And quite. And we tried hard to look at it from, how shall I say, very different perspectives historically, but also geographically. So we had lectures focusing on the UK, um, Germany, France, Austria and Switzerland. Only the planned lecture about the CSSSR, the Slansky trial, unfortunately did not materialize um, because of the illness of the speaker. But all about, we really try to have a look at it from very different perspectives. And we also thought it might sense or it might be very helpful um, to bring together all these different perspectives, or let's say rather the journalists and historians who somehow represent these perspectives to a certain extent, to a very close, to a very last event, a closing event, a panel. And here they are. So let me introduce them briefly. Here on my right, on your left, whatever this means, is Nick Cohen. He's a journalist, author, political commentator. <laughs> he writes for The Observer, The Spectator, The Guardian, just to name some of the, few, some of the journals and publications he's writing for. In 2015, he was the winner of the European Press Prize, and one of Nick's articles 
the one he published the Guardian about the Slansky trial was very important to me and was the reason for me to, 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 to make the Slansky trial, the GSSR, also part of our lecture series. Here on my left side, right from you, is Professor David Feldman. David is director of the Pears Institute for the study of anti-Semitism at Birkbeck. And he's also a professor of history at Birkbeck. As you probably know, in 2016, he was the vice chair of the Shami Chakrabarti um, inquiry into anti-Semitism and other forms of racism. Way difficult form. Other forms of racism in the Labour Party. Currently, he's working on a project, I guess it's a book, um, Conceptions of now the history of conceptions of anti-Semitism. I think that's going to be a very interesting publication. Very looking, I'm looking very much forward to this. On my right side, I think it's a difficult task. <laughs> On my right side, Christina Späti. Christina Späti is associate professor of contemporary history at the University of Fribourg which is in Switzerland, and her research interests are anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, the history of left in Israel from a comparative perspective, and the aftermath of national socialism. And she has published really extensively in all these fields. And here on my really, really left side, Dr. Peter Ulrich. Peter Ulrich is a sociologist working at the Technical University of Berlin. He's also a fellow at the Center for Research on Antisemitism at the Technical University of Berlin. And one of his, he has many, but one of his main research areas is public discourse and debates about antisemitism. Also him, also he, he has published extensively in this field and also from a comparative perspective and from a special comparative perspective which is really interesting for, for, for us um, his main subject, his main book is about the comparison between the left in the UK and in Germany and their discussions about Israel. So how do we do proceed tonight? Um, firstly, each of my panelists will give a short statement, probably five minutes or so, focusing on the question, what is really at the core of these very complicated discussions linked to the question of the relationship, the legacy of the left in Israel. Then we will discuss here on the panel a bit their statements. And finally, I will open a discussion to the floor for your questions. So I would say, let's start with um, the presentations. Maybe Nick, if you'd like to have the lead. Uh, yes, okay. Um, as a non-academic here, I feel it's important to uphold the honor of journalism by insisting on precise definitions. Um, um, let's start with what is the left? It's, it, to me, it's a very uh, woolly term. There are dozens of lefts, uh, often mutually incompatible. Um, but it's one of those things that um, you sort of know it when you see it. Um, it's also, I think, a question worth asking, uh, because I'm firmly of the view 
that after the end of the Cold War, the period before and after the Berlin Wall, saw the death of a definition of the left, and that meant you were, if you were on the left, you were socialist. You believed to some degree in uh, communal ownership of the economy. Uh, people would have arguments, terrible arguments about how much between communists, socialists, and democrats might have a vote. You knew what the left was. Now, socialism dies, it may come back again, but socialism dies, I think, before the Berlin Wall comes down. You see it everywhere. I saw it in my youth when the miners were disputed in Britain. It's just over, all over the world, people stop believing it. So the question is, what happens next? What are the people who call themselves the left or the left wing? What do they believe in? A lot of them believe in thoroughly admirable things. I believe in, in green politics, protecting the planet, in fairer societies. But the worst type, who very unfortunately for my country, now dominate not just the Labour Party, but universities, trade unions, whatever, the worst type just degenerated into a type of Occidentalism. They would go along with any regime or movement uh, however reactionary or clerical fascist or actual fascist uh, as long as it was anti-Western so that means that that meant that, that to me is the dominant strain on the left now they were never challenged uh, when I wrote a book about them nearly 10 years ago the abuse I got, I lost jobs I was driven out of the New Statesman for writing it uh, the abuse I got was a mixture of incredulity, how can we even bother to write about this, with, you, know, you shouldn't say these things. They were never challenged by the centre-left. Uh, in the Labour Party, in the left-wing press, and now they've been overwhelmed by them. Um, so that is, when I talk about the left, it's essentially people like the leadership of the Labour Party. I now mean, though I fully accept if anyone wants to get into arguments about definitions, as I say with academics, what else is there to do? Uh, we should welcome that. There are many other kinds of left. And the other thing, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all expert on the left or any type of left's relationship with Israel. Um, to me, then, this question is, what is anti-Semitism and what is worrying about what is going on? If you go back to what I said about left-wing politics, that becomes to dominate after 1989 and, and concentrate on the Occidentalism. Um, uh, they will go along with anti-Semitism. Uh, of course they will, because it is, a, it is a, a prejudice of countries fighting Israel. I mean, the fool, anyone who studied Arab Muslim propaganda, you know, it's the fool, you know, it's straight out of the thirties. Um, their own view of the world is a conspiracy theory. The elections are meaningless, you know, voting claims anything, they'll abolish it. The reason why the left always loses MI5 or the CIA. It doesn't, it's only one step further. Once you, as soon as you start using conspiracy theory, you're inches away from drawing in views. Because who are the ultimate secret news in the world? To my mind, which is not often talked about, which I think deserves a lot more coverage, was I have no problem with people who just concentrate on opposition to Israeli occupation of the West Bank. I don't think the argument, hey, why don't you, um, why aren't you concerned about what Assad and Hezbollah are doing in Syria or Iran? 
is much good because people aren't like that. I mean, there may be people in this room who are just fundamentally concerned with animal rights. And it's not much of an argument against you saying, oh, why are you concerned about the treatment of animals? Shouldn't you be concerned about Syria? You know, people have their political priorities. They have their interests. By definition, you can't uh, encompass the world's problems. Uh, what I am very concerned about is how fascistic uh, anti-Dreyfusar themes are now accepted without comment, we are just taken part of. And secondly, what goes along with that? Because if you accept that, you accept um, Arabs living in tyranny. You uh, find culturally relativist reasons to justify the oppression of Muslim women in Britain. It's their culture, it's Islamophobic to uh, accept that. You find culturally relativist reasons to accept homophobia and attack people, friends of mine like Peter Tatchell, when they raise a subject of Islamophobia. In other words, you can't be a little bit reactionary. Um, buy into one part of it, you buy into all of it. Um, and that, to my mind, is what large sections of the British liberal left have done. And indeed, you know, because Corbyn has sort of made everyone distance himself. And, and indeed, if you were around at the time, the British liberal mainstream as well, adem uh, adopting fundamentally anti-enlightenment, uh, in their own way, racist or racist of low expectation positions. So that, to my mind, those are the two things I can talk about. Okay. Thank you very much, Nick. David, how are you in now? Thank you. Um, well, is it on? Yeah. Yeah. great. Um, I think that to understand the, um, the sort of parlous state of relations between large parts of the left and Israel, um, one has to sort of follow what Nick was saying about the importance of 1989 and go back a bit further and think about the significance of Israel to the social democratic left in, in Europe, especially in Britain, but not only in Britain, in the Cold War years. Israel then seemed um, a, dem a social democratic utopia. Um, it uh, offered not least to the Labour left in those days, um, the possibility of a state in which trade unions were strong, um, in which the state um, owned the commanding heights of the economy, and which was outside of the Soviet bloc. Everything that has happened since needs to be, not everything, an awful lot that has happened since, needs to be understood in, um, in the light of this, as it were, love affair which went sour. Well, when did it go wrong? Was 1967 a turning point? People often say that the 67 war was a turning point. And I think this really um, places too much emphasis on that moment. Certainly in Britain in 1973, at the time of the Yom Kippur War, there was a Labour uh, in the Labour Party, um, those few Labour MPs who wanted to um, utter any um, words of opposition to um, Israel's conduct in that, uh, in that war were, were silenced by um, Harold Wilson, marginalised. 
they weren't even allowed to set up their own pressure group inside the parliamentary Labour Party. So what did change? And when did it really begin to change? Well, first of all, of course, Israel changed uh, with the... Um, or the perception of Israel changed with the election of the Likud government under Menachem Begin in 1977. So here was um, a government which um, did not call itself socialist. Um, at that point, it became much easier uh, to criticize um, uh, the occupation, which of course had already been in existence for 10 years, and also the, uh, the policy of building settlements, which accelerated. But we should also bear in mind that it was not only the left which began to look askance at Israel in these years. It was a conservative government led by Margaret Thatcher in 1980, which signed the, the EEC's Venice Declaration, which recognized pal uh, the Palestinians' right to self-determination. It criticized the occupation of settlements, and it saw the Palestinian Liberation Organization as a representatives of the Palestinian people. This was all much in advance of Labour Party policy in these times. What I think was particularly traumatic for the left was the Lebanon War of 1982, which was messy, far from surgical, and of course led to massacres carried out by Israel's allies. It's important to understand that part of what was happening in the 1980s as, the, as criticism of Israel grew was that this was a politics of, it was a politics of disappointment. Mm -hmm. Israel was no longer a repository of hope and it's a mistake to identify this growing distance from Israel only with the left of the Labour Party. Um, and we could, it, it was there with New Labour as well. The first um, uh, Blair government's foreign secretary was Robin Cook. Robin Cook called for a moralised foreign policy, and this was not Marxism, this was unadulterated liberalism. He, he called for Labour's foreign policy to promote human rights, democracy, and civil rights around the world. And he went to Israel in 1998 and had a well-publicized standoff with the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, then Benjamin Netanyahu, as now, and, and had a standoff with Netanyahu over the issue of settlements. Settlements simply are wrong, he said, and he said it in Israel. But it wasn't only the politics of disappointment and the changes in, and, and change in Israel. Also, the left did begin to change. Um, and part of this was, um, um, and um, a whole variety of new left causes arose in the wake of 1968. And I think this ties in with some of the things that Nick was talking about, the importance of the anti-apartheid campaign, mobilization against racism at home uh, through organizations such as the Anti-Nazi League, support for troops out, the feminist movement, gay and lesbian movements, and support for the politics of indigeneity. All these were forms of identity politics, and increasingly these were yoked to what was seen as the politics of anti-colonialism. Now what's important about that 
is that at this point, and this became even more clear with the Iraq invasion of 2003, the politics of anti-colonialism was a po- uh, had become an anti-Israel politics, an anti-Zionist politics. And it's an index of how far the left had travelled that in 1947-1948, the politics of anti-colonialism was a Zionist politics. It, uh, um, it, uh, um, certainly as it was seen uh, in Britain. Um, uh, I think what this highlights... I mean, one of the things which it highlights is the ambiguity of Zionism in relation to colonialism, that it doesn't actually fall neatly on one side or the other. Um, and, of course, uh, there were these... Uh, so there was these movements that came out of 1968, increasingly identified, uh, expressing forms of identity politics. And, again, as Nick said, these um, have... Um, uh, these tendencies, I think, now uh, dominate the leadership of the Labour Party and um, um, opposition to um, Israel's policies and, and the language of anti-Zionism sometimes goes along with that. But we should not exaggerate the degree of change. The Labour Party and even the Labour Party's leader who supports Labour Party policy, Labour Party policy is to support a two-state solution. Now, there's no way in which um, one can support a two-state solution and be a categorical anti-Zionist because it, 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 it presumes the legitimacy of the Jewish state. So um, this brings me, I think, to my last point of that, because I'm sure I've gone on for too long, um, is that I think a lot of the um, rancour and debate that we observe now, observe and participate in now, it has to do with ambiguities over what Zionism Mm -hmm. means. And I'll just give you um, an anecdote um, to to illustrate that, that um, as part of my work for the Chakrabarti, inquiry, I met um, a young man of Pakistani heritage, a member of um, the Labour Party in London, and we were at a meeting in the House of Commons, and around the side of the meeting we were chatting, and he said to me, well, David, you have to agree, don't you, that we have to do something about Zionism? I said, what do you mean? (laughs) And he said, well, we've got to stop the settlements. And the occupation. And I said, well, I, I, think, I think you're right. It would be good to stop the settlements and the occupation. But you have to understand that if you go around saying you, we have to do something about Zionism, people will think that you want to bring an end to the state of Israel. No, he says. Israel's not going anywhere. Israel's got nuclear weapons. I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, he was a man who was, who was loose with his terminology, but he was not stupid. And I think that um, the, uh, the discussion which is badly needed on the left is actually not over whether one should be a Zionist or not, but over what forms of Zionism are compatible with membership of the, and support of the Labour Party and which are not. Thank you. I mean, this was kind of a very British 
take on the question. Now let's see what the continent thinks. Christina, <laughs> over to you. Let's see what Switzerland thinks. <laughs> Sometimes it's not on the continent, as we know. Speaking for the continent. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, as has been said by Daniel also, what we are talking about tonight is really a very complicated complex, which involves a lot of European history, Jewish history, German history, Zionism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism. And what I would like to talk now uh, is anti-Semitism, even though I agree it's only a small part in this whole complex. But it also has a very long history and it was present at the beginning of these histories already of Zionism, anti-Zionism, etc. So anti-Semitism is a small part, but it is important to me because I believe that it is not sufficiently acknowledged by large parts of the left. As we have heard, it's very difficult nowadays uh, to define who is the left, but I would say even given this problem, if we look, the, if we look at um, left-wing politicians, but also left-wing activists, they usually think that anti-Semitism is not a problem today. They might acknowledge that it has been a problem, not even this, because I know from sources that I read uh, in newspapers in the 1970s and 80s, it was possible to talk about the, the history of Israel, well, the history of Palestine, they would say, but they meant the, uh, the history of Israel, and they might even talk about pogroms taking place in Russia around the end of the 19th century, but they would not talk about the Holocaust. I mean, I really saw that it's kind of unbelievable today, you know, when the Holocaust is like everywhere and talked about all the time. But in the 1970s, I, I can show you, if you don't believe me, I, I can show you several articles in left-wing uh, newspapers which talked about the history of Palestine and they would not mention the Holocaust. Maybe they would mention that in the 1930s many Jews came to settle in Palestine, but the Holocaust was not mentioned. So. As I, um, what I'm, I mean to say, that usually anti-Semitism is acknowledged as a historical problem, sometimes not even this, but today, if we talk about today, people will not acknowledge it. They will say Islamophobia, discriminations about, against blacks, whoever, homosexuals, is much more pressing, and I do agree. I mean, it is more of a problem at the moment, but it doesn't mean that anti-Semitism has gone. And um, I would say that the, the left, like, like this question of anti-Semitism has two dimensions for the left. Uh, on the one hand, it doesn't, it, ha it is not seen as a problem any longer. And on the other hand, left-wing people tend to think that, anti that they can't be anti-Semitic anyway because they're leftists. And they even refuse to talk about it because they just say, you know, it, it's not possible. We're left-wing. It's not possible that we're anti-Semitic anti because we're anti-racist. And uh, here again, I could show you many articles uh, in, in Swiss or uh, also German newspapers where uh, left-wing anti-Semitism is always written in quotation marks to show that it's something that is made up by whoever Jews or Zionists or whom it might be. So what I want to say is that I do not think uh, anti-Zionism is always anti-Semitic, but there are incidents in which criticism of Israel can be anti-Semitic, and they usually they refer to the Holocaust. I mean, the Holocaust, as I say, nowadays is like omnipresent, 
And it is very quickly evoked, uh, for instance, uh, the Holocaust in order to criticize Israeli politics by equating the, uh, them uh, with uh, the Nazis or Nazi politics. And this is the turning point where I would say where criticism of Israel begins to, to, to be uh, anti-Semitic. Thank you. This is a very different voice. Now let's have another voice from the continent, Peter. Yeah, as a German, I explicitly I do not want to speak for the continent. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, the title of today's event is The Legacy of the Left in Israel. And looking at the speakers here and where they come from and also looking at my own research field, I would like to kind of uh, change the topic a bit and would like to quote, uh, kind of quote a former British Prime Minister saying there is no such thing as a legacy of the left. There are only individual left groupings here and there with their legacies. <laughs> Why? Of course, in this statement, in a way, is as reductionist as it was when Margaret Thatcher uh, said that there is no society, and I'm a sociologist, so of course I think that there is a society. Um, so coming back on our issue, uh, why do I question the legacy? Of course, surely there are traces of a common legacy. Um, for example, the left's alliance with the Palestinians and the growing hate that you have talked about a lot now, that developed after what I call the discovery of the Palestinians in 1967. Uh, definitely, that's a common legacy. Also, in the years after 1967, uh, Palestinian nationalists, anti-imperialists from Western countries, secret services from the East, and terrorists from all over the world formed really transnational coalitions, which definitely is also kind of a, something for a common heritage. Yet what fascinates me personally, what fascinates me most is what we see beyond the obvious similarities, and we find much difference in different national contexts. Let me just give you two examples. Um, as was already said uh, in my research, I compared the discourse about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and anti-Semitism uh, in the left um, in Germany and in Britain. And the basic difference is quite easy. The German left argues whether to side with the Palestinians or with the Israelis, while the British left, if there is a debate, it is maybe on how strongly to support the Palestinians or not on which side to support. I mean, my notion of left may be a bit more to the left than what Nick was talking about, but um, the more uh, from the labor left to, towards the fringes. Um, I did my research in the years after 9-11 and the Iraq war 2003, um, and you saw two very interesting developments in the two countries that I compared. In Germany, there have, you have seen the development of left-wing currents who are very critical of anti-Semitism, um, later developed a very friendly position towards Israel and radicalized this and started a process of radicalization uh, which also included sometimes embracing uh, the most radical right-wing Israeli politics and um, also sometimes the development of anti-Muslim uh, tendencies. All that resulted, the reason for this radicalization process, of course, all that resulted somehow from the special symbolic meaning of fighting anti-Semitism, the high value of fighting anti-Semitism is got in the German discourse. Uh, but they kind of radicalized and universalized this focus in a kind of manichaic fashion. 
Britain at the same time um, there was a comparable process. The, some currents of the left started to form alliances with the Muslim community against growing anti-Muslim racism. You may remember uh, what happened and what, what was built in that time, uh, um, groups like the Respect Party or uh, the uh, Stop the War Coalition and so on. Unfortunately, what we saw, the kind of sensitivity uh, for victims of racism on the one side was accompanied by much bigotry, including, for example, things like invitations of clear anti-Semitic Islamist uh, preachers to left-wing events, just to give you one example. Although I don't think the left is as rotten as you may uh, think it is, but we see that the background to the sensitivity I mean, concerning um, anti-Muslim racism uh, was also the background uh, for stupidity that uh, was found, um, or that the background can be found in the British left's legacy of being a left in, an, uh, in the former empire. It was their anti-imperialism tradition uh, and they are being situated in a much more uh, multicultural context than the German left, which did not care about racism a lot because just it was not an issue, it's not something they were confronted with. My second example comes uh, for, for, the, uh, for the meaning of contextual difference, comes from research which I did with my colleague Zina Arnold. We compared the use of Nazi comparisons and placards on left-wing rallies in Germany and the United States. Our conclusion was that in both contexts, equating Israeli politics with the Nazis, of course, is stupid and wrong and does not explain anything, but it really serves different secondary needs or ends. In Germany, with the Holocaust being the crime of their own collectivity, um, the function of such equations is uh, something like uh, to relieve or you know, to give you a kind of guilt relief, maybe. In the US, of course, the Holocaust is always the crime of the others. So there's, it definitely has not this exculpatory function. So just if you take this idea, the same holds true for all the debates that we do in this field, like boycotting. Definitely uh, the notion of boycott evokes different meanings in different countries, say Germany or Ireland, where Mr. Boycott lived and kind of gave uh, this kind of political strategy its name. So what we see, heritage, political culture, or what I would call discursive opportunity structures for different interpretations, including sensitivity and blindness, are, um, they result from different symbolic universes where the left acts in. The current discussions that we have about anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Zionism, criticism of Israel, and all what's between that, the current discussions constantly reduce such complexities. There we find strange discursive coalitions. On the one side, you have the, uh, those, uh, the critics of anti-Semitism who are often friends with or advocates of Israel. On the other side, you have the anti-racist pro-Palestinian um, groupings um, who often turn a blind eye on anti-Semitism, especially within the peace movement. So that's a discursive coalition that uh, does exist and consolidates a twofold self-deception self-deception because neither the conflict can be understood as uh, such a one-dimensional uh, one thing, Israel against Palestine, nor can the debate here be understood as something like anti-Semitism uh, against racism. 
In fact, if we want to judge something in a conflict, we have to judge uh, actions, deeds, uh, leaflets, and so on from at least two angles. Um, that means we have to ask, is something politically justified and is something anti-Semitic? There is a tendency to make just one question out of this, uh, resulting in a binary of acceptable versus anti-Semitic. Brian Klug once noted that, note, um, that this omnipresent search, where, where's the line, where do we cross the line from uh, acceptable criticism of Israel, um, is something like as though unacceptable and anti-Semitic come to be the same thing. It is my hope that looking at the different legacies, we can learn something. We, I think, should keep in mind that specific discursive contexts and specific speaking positions uh, are enabling as well as restricting conditions for left politics. What I would like to have is maybe a bit more self-reflexivity, a bit more wondering where do my arguments come from, where do the arguments of uh, the other side come from, a bit more openness towards the background of those arguments of others, simply maybe a bit more modesty that would benefit all who take part in this endless and often so harsh debate where ambiguities of political actions are so often ignored. Please allow me one last word, and then I finish um, what this means for research, with implications this has for research. Well, I think what I said implies the need uh, to further differentiate between antisemitism as a problem and the additional layer of antisemitism as a political symbol within discursive battles. I think we need much more sociology of knowledge or kind of meta-research um, about how these two levels impact on one another. Because, of course, coming back to my uh, initial statement, because there is a society, and quite a complex one, with many legacies. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. As you can see, for um, listening to, these, to my panelists, there are really very different takes at this question. I mean, <coughs> sorry. Peter thinks there might not be a legacy. Nick thinks there might be a legacy and makes a point um, we have to look at occidentalism, right? That's the main thing for him. David thinks it's more about the love affair and disappointment. And, um, and Christina brings up, as the only person, the topic of the Holocaust. Um, I think there's quite a quite a tension here in a very positive thing and I would like to go down this route a bit more so my first question to Nick is you are quite critical about the British left mm. nothing wrong with that <laughs> um, you also but you also introduce a very interesting historical perspective you are a journalist but you really introduce a very historical perspective which well, is, sorry. Let's, just a second, which is an Eastern European perspective. You know you refer back to Stalinism, to the Slansky trial. Mm. And, and my question is, that seems to be quite unusual at first sight. I don't think it is. It's, it's, it's very interesting. But my question is, what was the response of the right of public here in the UK to your take on this topic, on this, this new perspective? How did your readers and colleagues react to this? Uh, not so well. Um, on the whole, I mean, uh, look, could I just say first, that yes. description of the British left we heard could do with some more ambiguity. It really wasn't true what you said. Me? No, no. It is really not true that the Stop the War Coalition 
and respect were set up as some kind of response to anti-Muslim racism, anti-Muslim bigotry. They were not. They were set up by the Socialist Workers' Party and George Galloway. They were set up by people who, uh, in George Galloway's case, uh, had saluted Saddam Hussein where he had, let's begin the modern Holocaust, mm -hmm. after he had gassed his Kurdish ethnic minority in Kurdistan, in the genocide. They were set up by people who quite explicitly, in terms of the Trotskyist far left, who have been looking around for a new proletariat to do their revolution for them after the uh, English proletariat so let them down, uh, and quite explicitly said, look, um, we, we can use Muslim anger and control it. They have been, since been run by people who are quite happy to support and appear on Iranian propaganda channels. Iran, a country that only subjugates women and kills gays, it sends trade unions to prison. Quite happily, they quite happily then go along with Vladimir Putin, a gangster capitalist, uh, a former secret serviceman from a state which has no connection, like Iran, no connection with left-wing history and left-wing politics. It's not demonising the left to say that. It's actually standing up for what I was taught and brought up to believe were the best values of the left. When you have people doing that, don't try and wipe it all away so it's some uh, innocent, innocent defence uh, against anti-Muslim bigotry, which I oppose and everyone must oppose, that may be gone a bit too far and a bit naive. To go back to your slanty trials, there is a history... <clears throat> You never say this about neo-Nazis doing the same thing. You say, no, no, look at the history. Go back to, go back to where these people come from. You know, <laughs> there was a very stupid saying from the 1930s, from the popular front, of no enemies on the left. There are plenty of enemies on the left. There are the great arguments of an age are as likely to run within left and right as between left and right. So, you know, don't, and you know, I felt a little bit with David as well. I mean, uh, you, you know, this idea that Corbyn still supports two state selection, well, that's Labour Party policy. Labour Party policy is to keep Trident. Corbyn doesn't believe in that. Labour Party policy is to do the best to keep Britain in the single market, not representatively the EU. Corbyn doesn't believe that. You know, the danger with these type of arguments of just saying, oh, well, we're going to be nice because somehow we treat the left wing without the same intellectual rigour as we would treat the right wing, is, is that you let movements like that come to power, seize control of your party. And God help us in my country. God help us. Because it is perfectly possible the Prime Minister will call a general election for May. And then suddenly all these people, people like David and I knew about, and some of us bit our tongues, some of us didn't, didn't have necessary arguments, didn't have necessary confrontation, are going to be up there. The worst thing to happen to the British left was to actually win and win control of the Labour Party because they will be seen in a general election campaign. And vast amounts of stuff, which again you can say, oh well, you know, leave people come out and stuff like that. The Conservatives saved it all up on the leadership of the Labour Party. And it's awful. It's awful from a left-wing perspective. The best, the best side of the old left for all its numerous crimes, including some of the worst crimes in human history, never forget that, was some notion of solidarity. If you are a Iranian woman 
oppressed by a theocratic reactionary state, if you're an Iranian feminist, you could turn to women in the Western left and ask for their support. You can do with some now, not with others. You like to be told it's your culture to have a preference, Islamophobic too. Criticise it. You know, that's, that, that is what has been lost, again, excepting that there are many different lefts. But that has been lost with the dominant left. And, you, and it's not some kind of McCarthyism to, to, to raise this and to argue against it. It's not some kind of Daily Mail journalism. It's trying to save the honour of the left if there still is a left to save. And of that I'm now in some doubt. But, but Nick, I mean, I agree with your plea for intellectual rigour. But when you came forward first time with your plea for intellectual rigour, also when you, when, when, when you have to discuss the relationship between the left and Israel and the Jews, what were the reaction of the audience, of your audience, your readers, well, your I, colleagues? Well, I, I, I find it very interesting. Uh, I'm going to say this for the last time in my life. Although I'm called Cohen, which is kind of a joke Jewish name, as you know, uh, I'm not remotely Jewish in that my mother wasn't Jewish, my grandmother, <laughs> grandmother wasn't Jewish, my grandfather revolted against his whole family and became a communist. So not only did I, I would religious Jews not accept me as Jewish, I had no upbringing at all in Jewish culture. I mean, I'm still not very sure what Mazel Tov or whatever it means. I, I, someone said to me, I was going, what are you talking about? I, I, absolutely nothing. And I was okay on the left. <clears throat> and I don't like saying that. I feel like, uh, if, if I said, well, you know, I'm Nick, I'm not Jewish, Cohen, I feel like I'm arguing with the SS has been some mistake in the paperwork. <laughs> um, and and uh, so I don't generally say that now. And I was okay on the British left. I was their darling for a while. I was about the only person criticising Tony Blair when he came to power. But you're okay. The, the interesting thing about modern racism, it's not like the racism of the 19th and the early 20th century. People very rarely say, I am a racist. Whereas, you know, an anti-Semite or an anti-black racist, I've said that. And so you're okay until you start arguing. And so you start saying, well, there's something going very wrong. You're only saying that because Zionists say that, say not true. You're only saying that because you're a Jew. And then at that point, you never again say, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. Ever. You don't say that. So, I do see this in this kind of Harold Jacobson kind of way of people desperately going along and, and, being, and being more you know, anti-Zionist, not even questioning what that means uh, than now, to, in, a side, in, a, in a kind of trying to pass as white kind of way to avoid the criticism and, and, the, and, and the abuse you get. And, and, and you be so that's 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 what and I just I just sort of had enough of it. And in the process, you sort of become a Jew. Mm -hmm. I mean, people in this room, if you make arguments, the type of arguments that uh, you know, that don't go along with left wing orthodoxy, you will become Jews. You'll be treated as Jews, and then in the end, you start thinking, well, you know, uh, you'll start, you, you, you will start thinking like that. I accept, and, and here's a very interesting question. I accept it's very different in Germany. Is that because, do you think there's a frivolity about Anglo-Saxon culture? Because we never experienced Nazism and communism, because we don't know how bad things can get, that, that uh, people play with these ideas or indulge these ideas because they don't think they matter, whereas in Germany, which has experienced both, um, people are 
a bit wiser. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question I also want to put to you, you know. I mean, what is at stake in Germany compared to the UK? You know, what's the main difference when you compare these two things? Has it to do, for example, with the Holocaust, I mean, as Nick proposes? That's at the core of what I wanted to say, that um, you know, the left being formed in a specific context means that you react to specific uh, problems, to specific uh, formative conditions. And uh, the problems of legitimizing uh, politics are different in countries. And of course, it's no surprise that uh, uh, to be or not to be seen as, uh, as uh, a successor of the, of the Third Reich, uh, not to be seen as anti-Semitic, is at the very core of political legitimacy in Germany. It is uh, the, the yardstick where uh, German politics is measured. But that's what something that kind of <coughs> interfered with the dominant uh, pro-Palestinian, pro the people under oppression, under occupation and so on, is kind of interfered with. It is, uh, it is broken. But um, I would think this is much more important for the difference than saying, uh, I don't know if it has a policy of the Anglo-Saxon culture, but there has never been uh, a tradition of uh, such a uh, philosophical, or, or not so strong tradition of philosophical um, elaboration of anti-Semitism and where it comes from, what it means, if you compare it to, uh, to what's been written about this in, uh, in the comparatively small uh, Germany. Um, but I would like quickly just uh, to reply to another point. Um, I think this is also again what, what I wanted to point to before, and I think you see too strongly only one, uh, one legacy. And of course, I, I absolutely agree that uh, the left and their record have many things that are very problematic. You mentioned Iran. Uh, and of, I also agree that George Galloway maybe had some good days when he saw one and a half or two million people in the streets, but uh, that they also make strategic, that they also have strategic ideas, how can I make those into voters? That does not necessarily mean that their being anti-war is wrong or is, is that they are lying about this. Um, so when I look at the British left, and I was not talking about British, I talked about the left in general, but when I look at the British left, I see some more traditions. I find it really hard to put uh, the Trotskyist uh, groups that form uh, the radical left in Britain in the tradition of the Stalinist Slansky trial. That's quite an endeavor to put this in one historical line. And there's anarchism, there's Eurocommunism, so there's a bit more. But what they all share is um, an idea which comes, goes back to Lenin and thinking in nations as subjects of, of history. And this is something which is, you know, this opens the uh, a door of getting racist or getting ethnocentric when you think in not in class, but in uh, in national terms, and if you see nations as acting maybe one against the other. I mean, I would yeah. like to take your your question about these different points of legacies or national contexts um, to bring in Christina, and somehow your experience links up a bit to to Nick Nick's experience, but in a very different context. I remember when you tried to publish your book um, about 
the left in Israel, in Switzerland, between 1967 1991, you were unable to publish the book in Switzerland. And you had to use a German publishing house, which was a very good one, by the way, better than the Swiss one, I would say. <laughs> but still, you had to go abroad. And um, I think the reaction of the Swiss left to your book was quite harsh, I think. So how do you explain these reactions, right? And what is really at stake for the left? Um, and are there different issues at stake in Switzerland, in Germany or Austria? Um, I think you made a very good point by pointing out to Occidentalism and how it is important now, uh, how, since 1989 you said, uh, in like giving the left a way of how to think about Israel and the, the oppressed peoples. But talking about legacies, I believe it's, it, it has a longer um, a longer or less legacy than 1989, and that it came up in the in the 1980s has to do with um, the fact that this was the time where, uh, at least on the continent, but I think also in Great Britain, um, the new left or some thoughts and ideas of the new left, not all of them, uh, but some of them, defunded into mainstream social democratic um, politics, and I think they took up. Uh, some legacies that came, I mean, it wasn't called Occidentalism at the time, but it was more called Solidarity with the Oppressed People. And here also maybe that go, really goes back to Lenin uh, also, because it, it amazes me somehow that it was the new left that in the German-speaking countries bought, br uh, brought back the notion of folk, which was, you couldn't use it anymore after the Nazis had used it. The new left took it up again and brought it back into political discourse in the 1970s and in the 1980s and 90s uh, it became mainstream uh, political, uh, social democratic uh, discourse. <clears throat> and I think that's a very mm -hmm. important legacy and which is very strong for instance in, in Switzerland which makes people so much uh, thinking that they can't be anti-Semitic because they are in favor of the oppressed people and the Palestinians are the oppressed people. They would never think of Jews as oppressed peoples because they, they appear to, to be the, the, the white and the, the powerful. And uh, <clears throat> I think this is a very strong legacy and it goes back uh, uh, a long way. Um, and yeah, mm -hmm. we're talking about legacy. I think this legacy that I find it interesting that you term it Occidentalist. I have to remember that. But I think it goes uh, back uh, a lot, a way longer. But what do you think is at stake? Because I can also feel there are some emotions here, out here. Um, but for very different reasons in the UK, as Nick pointed out, also I'll come back to David. I mean, he had to face some emotional reactions to his work too. Um, what kind, I'll give you the word in a sec, but first back to my question. I have to feel there's something at stake here and sometimes not quite clear what is what is at stake. Why were this extreme reactions to your book. What is at stake in Switzerland when you talk about the left and Israel? What is at stake in other German-speaking countries? How is this linked maybe to, to the Holocaust? You made this point. What is at stake in Germany or in Austria? Why is everybody so... I think in Switzerland it, it, it's, um, it's, it's also more the elder generation that reacts like this. The younger are more mm -hmm. relaxed about this uh, question of anti-Semitics uh, and question of uh, anti-Semitism. So it's like the 68 generation who, who reacts like this. And I think it's because, because of the Cold War. And the, I mean, 
Switzerland, as you know, has very right-wing politics. They never had a social democratic government, for instance. So, you know, the whole mm -hmm. society politics, also, they're also, they're always right-wing. And it's true that during the 1970s, in particular, during the Cold War, uh, there were lots of not very nice things going on against the left. And today, even today for those people, if you criticize the left, which I believe is what the left should do, but if you criticize the left by saying some of its statements towards Israel might be anti-Semitic, then you're a so-called Nestbeschmutzer. Uh, and Nestbeschmutzer, how do you say um, that? Is it a word that you can use in English how too? Do we, like great word. It's a dirty word. How do we translate this into oh, English? Someone who defiles their own nest. Okay. Oh, right. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're not supposed to do that. And uh, they, they, these people don't, just because, yeah, what has been happening to the left, how much they have been discriminated mm -hmm. against. And I mean, it's true, some people couldn't be teachers. Uh, some, there, were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of observation, uh, political observation with this fish. Uh, like, like people were observed by their neighbors, left-wing people were observed by their neighbors. It's also kind of a trauma, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which I understand to some degree, right? But uh, it shouldn't keep you from being critical towards your own mm -hmm. people. So another plea um, um, for, for really rigor, intellectual rigor, and this brings me back but also, um, um, also commented on how difficult it is for the left somewhat, some, somehow to accept this intellectual rigor. And this, this, this brings me back to David. I mean, my feeling is that quite different from Nick, you are seen rather more as a person who has some kind of understanding for money of these positions held by the left towards Israel, which are somewhat under scrutiny at the moment. So my question is, how would you explain your position? And has this something to do with you being a historian? So your questions are different. I'm not quite sure what you're asking me. <laughs> 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 you mind asking you? Again. Okay. <laughs> um, um, Just see this. <laughs> I think the way how you argue, yes, um, which brings you sometimes into difficulties, um, is has very much to do with being a historian, having a long perspective, and um, being interesting to see a broader picture. And um, why is this important okay. when we talk about our topic? What okay. does this help to understand, okay. to explain, and where can criticism okay. in then? Okay. Let me say a couple of things. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> one, in general, actually, I don't think I get into difficulties. Mm -hmm. And but uh, I remember uh, the reaction uh, of the uh, No, sure, but. <clears throat> I got into difficulties at one particular mm -hmm. moment, and that was actually before I had said or done anything. People, <laughs> uh, people were sort of getting their retaliation in first because, um, so I mean, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, I'll say something about that, and then I'll say something about some of the advantages of taking mm -hmm. 
a long view, if you, mm -hmm. if you like. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened over, uh, over Chakrabarti was that um, I think some people ident who were not happy to see the inquiry, um, and these were people, I think, um, in the Jewish community and inside the Labour mm -hmm. Party, who felt that they had been making mm -hmm. progress um, over over issues over labour uh, over mm -hmm. uh, uh, the controversy over um, anti-Semitism in the party, and they thought they were making progress because uh, Jan Royal was conducting an inquiry mm -hmm. into um, affairs at mm -hmm. at Oxford, and then all of a sudden the, the uh, Labour Party leadership. Um, Trump that, yeah. or, or appeared to trump that with another inquiry, and uh, people felt that they hadn't been consulted. Mm -hmm. the, the Jewish labour movement felt it hadn't been mm -hmm. consulted, and so um, that was announced on the Friday. By the Monday, I was being rubbished in the, the Jewish Chronicle, and um, and. People dug up a very obscure report that I had mm -hmm. uh, um, I had written, um, which actually um, and and started quoting uh, quoting that back in ways which were either inaccurate or extremely mm -hmm. um, extremely tendentious. Mm -hmm. So I had said that uh, um, uh, when people use. Um, Holocaust analogies to describe Israel's conduct, but that's not necessarily anti-Semitic. I did say that it was wrong and offensive. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that one of the problems that we have, and this goes back to, mm -hmm. to something that Peter was saying, that uh, when people say things mm -hmm. uh, that are wrong and offensive, they're sometimes described as anti-Semitic, and that actually doesn't help uh, mm -hmm. people to understand mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why they're wrong and offensive. Um, so in other words, it's, it, it's calling it anti mm -hmm. calling something anti-Semitic is a sort of is often a cry of pain, mm -hmm. but it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 um, it's not. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. Mm -hmm. very good at, at actually calling a spade what mm -hmm. sort of a shovel it is. Mm -hmm. um, so, but actually, apart from that, I haven't had much uh, trouble. It was. Um, an extraordinary, very destabilizing mm -hmm. month, but actually it was, I think it was a political gambit in mm -hmm, play mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. people. Um, but over that, but over the long, uh, taking the long view, um, I think that taking a long view can unsettle. Mm -hmm. Uh, some people's assumptions, mm -hmm. and um, one one of the ways in which one might think about that is to take the term anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. which you know, people think that they know what anti-Semitism mm -hmm. is, uh, and and perhaps they do. But actually, ever since the term was invented um, mm -hmm. 140 years ago, 
people have thought they know what it means, but, but, but actually they've given it a very different meaning mm -hmm. uh, over time. Mm -hmm. um, of course, now, um, and here I want to say mm -hmm. something actually which relates to the conversation mm -hmm. we were having before, mm -hmm. um, uh, why people get so upset and why mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. E e emotions get so fraught. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you accuse someone of being an anti-Semite now, after the Holocaust, mm -hmm. it's immediately connected with actions that, that are associated with genocide. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a nuclear bomb of an accusation. It's, it's impossible to have a conversation. It, 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 it's, it silences uh, the opponent, who of course doesn't recognize him or herself um, uh, um, as an anti-Semite, mm -hmm. um, even if what they're saying is offensive and ignorant mm -hmm. and, and wrong. And, and on the other side, um, because of the, um, because of, I think the reason why mm -hmm. Jews have become so upset by the um, debate in and around the, the, the Labour Party, mm -hmm is because of the, the, their very strong identification with the State of Israel. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not only that, mm -hmm. it's that the way in which that sort of identification is given a political legitimacy mm -hmm. and value in an age of identity politics, and that is new. Mm -hmm. I, 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 and this is where perhaps a, a long view is helpful. Mm -hmm. For most of the 20th century, Jews positioned themselves in relation to British politics, mm -hmm. which was bifurcated on lines of class. With the end of the Cold War, with the um, deindustrialization mm -hmm. of, of the UK, and with the rise of identity politics, this has mm -hmm. changed. And in that sense, mm -hmm. Jews in Britain are never more assimilated mm -hmm. to the mode of politics than when they're talking about Israel and then when they're complaining about anti-Semitism. So it's a question of assimilation then? It, 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 it's, it's assimilation to the mm -hmm. mode of, mm -hmm. of British politics. But mm -hmm. what this means is that what you have are a clash now, mm -hmm. is a clash of identities and there's no third, third term to adjudicate between mm -hmm. them. So on the one hand, you have an assertion of identity. On the other hand, you have an accusation of anti-Semitism. And it's actually very difficult mm -hmm. to construct a, a debate and an argument between if some, positions. If, some, if someone accused uh, a white person of anti-black racism, that wouldn't necessarily be um, accusing them of complicity in the North Atlantic slave trade. I don't quite see why, why you have yes. to phrase anti-Semitism with this yes. unsupportable burden. 
Well, I think it, it partly goes back to what Christina was saying about the, the uh, and indeed Peter, about the way in which the Holocaust figures in culture now and the way in which people, uh, in which people understand what anti-Semitism is. But, I mean, uh, the problem is, is, is with that, it seems to me you can't even discuss anti-Semitism because instantly you're set... I mean, there are anti-Semites, there are anti-Semitic ideas just as there are anti-black races. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that if you, as soon as you're discussing it, you say, you want to kill six million people, that makes, that makes any kind of arguments about racism impossible. I, I give you, um, uh, can I just say, I was trying, to make, uh, trying mm -hmm. to make an observation over why people find the accusation of anti-Semitism incredulous. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't making a prescription. Right. But I, was, uh, 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 but I was trying to make an observation. You wanted to add yeah, ju Just let me give you one example of uh, how this works. Uh, with my colleague Michael Korstok, uh, we did a report on uh, how do different actors in Berlin who are concerned with anti-Semitism come to their assessment of the situation and why do these assessments differ so much? When we did the presentation, much of it was concerned with, uh, you know, thing, uh, smear words of uh, school children uh, with dubious feelings, and only parts of it were concerned with like things like anti-Jewish violence or things like this. When we did the presentation of this report, uh, the first thing that was mentioned by the local mayor um, of this uh, part of Berlin was we are at a place where uh, so many thousand Jews have been deported in 1933, with, which was absolutely, uh, which does absolutely make sense, which was absolutely true, um, but it set uh, a framework for everything that came afterwards. And it, it is much more difficult to say, to differentiate between, for example, forms or contexts that produce different forms of anti-Semitic sentiments when you have this moral yardstick. Uh, the problem is, if, if the debate was as rational as it should be, one could argue, one could take time to see there's this and that, but um, that's not the way it works. But it's very interesting that it is not this way uh, in terms of racism. I, I would subscribe to, to, to what you said. Uh, but I think this is, at least in Germany, this is because Germany, uh, they dealt a lot or tried to come to terms with anti-Semitism and never tried to come to terms with their colonial legacy, for example. Yeah. It's never been mentioned. But this brings me to, to another question, maybe my last question before I open the panel to the floor. I mean, your discussion between the three of you, um, what shapes then really the current debates in these different conflicts? Is it actually, or are we talking actually about hidden debates about the past, you know, the Holocaust in Germany or imperialism in the UK, but not really about Israel? I mean, you could argue, if I follow you, that the Germans and the British use Israel to discuss or to avoid discussing their past. Or have the current debate to do with something completely different? Could I put a, I mean, sometimes I think novelists are are better guides than um, historians. Um, <laughs> well, no, you, you, almost, you almost need a, a novelistic imagination mm -hmm. to understand. Look, <clears throat> worse so the younger generation, 
on the left you have people who are hugely constrained, mm -hmm. hugely constrained in what they can say. They've got policing in their heads, as we used to say, monitoring their language. They have people around them monitoring their language. They can be denounced for linguistic slips, for prejudices, for cultural appropriations we, we never even heard of a few years ago. Identity politics is, uh, 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 is that, you know, also has licensed areas of hatred. And you've got people from a culture which, you know, talk about definition of anti-Semitism, political anti-Semitism in the 19th century follows on from millennia of religious anti-Semitism. And then suddenly you say to these highly constrained people, nervous people, tongue-biting, eye-darting people, you can say what you want. You can pour out your hatred about a traditional object, a deep, deep traditional object of your, of your culture's scorn. You can use Nazi swastikas, another, you know, verboten symbol if you're on the left, against the Jews as well. I do think there is, there is I mean, I see it in comrades of mine, there is a kind of release that, that uh, anti-Semitism gives. And, I, and I, I agree with you to an extent. I mean, is, Israel to me, you know, when David's talking about Robin Cook going there and saying, you can't build settlements, good for Robin Cook. Of course they shouldn't be building settlements. I mean, Israel to me is something else. Is if you, you have to look at how anti-Semitism combines with a whole load of anti-Enlightenment, counter-Enlightenment attitudes that have spread in, with cultural relativism into people who consider themselves the inheritors of the Enlightenment, and how it comes in with a package, and how it allows rather traditional hatreds to come out. You know, British colonialists in the 19th century would be all for the rights of free-born Englishmen, defending Parliament, citizens, but would say to the African native, but those are not for you because we are imperial masters. Now their great-grandchildren could say, but those are not for you, because it's culturally imperialist to give equal human rights to Muslim women in Iran. We shouldn't be talking about that. We are somehow wrong. It's the same thing. Um, so I do think, I, I mean, in a funny way, you know, I'm quite pro-Palestinian. We've got favourite women. In a funny way, I don't think Israel has a huge amount to do with it. And certainly, certainly on, on the other side. I, I accept what, what David said about Jewish identity in Britain. Shall I open the floor for questions? <laughs> yes, Michael. Um, there's lots of young people today who think that Jews are by definition um, rich and right-wing. Uh, but there is, as we all know, a long tradition of Jews playing a very significant role on the left, probably from before Marx, but certainly Marx onwards. Um, but a thing I want to ask you about is the, the position of left-wing Jews that's a kind of clutch thing on what's going on at the moment. And it seems to me that there is a strand of Jewish socialists who um, have become part of what I call uh, the anti-Semitic chorus. Um, how does one explain that? Who wants to answer? Well, I mean, sorry, get away from identity politics. Um, identity isn't destiny. I mean, Everyone, you know, the whole argument against identity politics is, is denial of individualism. 
It's the devil in your freedom. Someone puts you in a box, another box. I mean, Jews are just as capable of being as unpleasant and as stupid and as, uh, you know, as bad as anyone else. Bertrand Russell used to talk about the fallacy of the superior, superior virtue of the oppressed. He said that, used to say that uh, one of the great problems of left-wing people is they see someone who's being oppressed, a nation that's being oppressed, and instead of saying oppression is wrong, they start saying, well, look, oh, this oppressed people, they have the greatest poets, they are the finest people, their warriors are the finest men, the conclusion was oppression is good for people. You know, <laughs> yes, yes, they're all left-wing. I want to ask you, how long do you think there will be a significant left-wing Jewish presence on the left? Do you think it's going to stay there? I mean, discussing David as well. I, I just wonder. Sorry, how long? How, how long do you think there will remain a significant Jewish presence on the left, or will Jews just get out? Do you think? Well, um, one of the things I've learned is not to predict the future, but it seems <laughs> to me that the, the Jewish presence on the left is is under pressure, hmm. and this, I think, will will reduce its reduce its numbers. There is, by the way, a small footnote to that. There's a very good book called Jews and the Left by Arthur Liebman, I think the name is, but basically on the United States. And he talks about these processes in the 60s. Of, uh, of, in fact, in the States, just after the 1967 war, about how Jews had to choose. And it seems, it seems to me that Jews on the left are under particular pressure. And this, I think, um, makes their presence there harder and would probably reduce it. I wouldn't want to predict too far. Just one second. I really can see this here in the UK, but Christina, what would you say about the Jews and the left under pressure? I'm not talking about the continent in Germany or <laughs> in Switzerland, the Austria, and the German speaking part, which has so much in the Holocaust. Um, uh, I think it's, it's very different in Switzerland. I think. Jews in, in Switzerland are not generally perceived to be like on the left or on the right or wherever. They, I mean, what I do think, what I do see is, um, what, where I completely agree with David also is uh, how identity politics matter, and I think they matter more today to Swiss Jews also, and especially on the left, than they did in the 1970s. I mean, there, there are many examples of, of people. Who, who identified with the left, even with the new left, who were Jewish, but uh, their being Jewish didn't really matter to them. Sometimes you, you can kind of see it when they talk about Israel, that it does a bit, but, uh, and I think um, this kind of general that identity politics or identification on, on religious terms is m much more important in the 19th and 1990s than it used to be in the 1970s, and I think uh, Swiss Jews are also concerned by that. But apart from that, I don't think they're perceived as being left-wing or right-wing. I think they're everywhere. Even, I mean, even Swiss People's Party have quite prominent Jewish um, representatives, which is surprising to other Jews. I've heard that before. So they're like all over the place. And uh, I think uh, maybe in Britain this is more of a question, you know, are they right or are they left? Or I mean, ca can they be generalized like that also? I mean. David wanted to come in and then hand over to you. Uh, I, mean, I just wanted to add that if one wants to, uh, I mean, I think that Jews on the left are under pressure, but they're under pressure from more than one place. And I think that um, the, um, the leadership of the community 
is uh, in this country is 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 becoming uh, well has at times been um, inhospitable, and so uh, so the accusations of uh, people of being self-hating or of fouling their own nest and so forth creates a, a, a creates a different sort of pressure um, as well. So uh, so being a Jew on the left. Um, at present, it's not a comfortable place to be, but there's more than one reason for that. You had a question? And then to okay. make the I mean, yeah. I feel this is a bit strange because I've been the object of this discourse, and the left is not represented on the panel. You're being talked about on the panel. I don't. I disagree. <laughs> Sorry, okay. I, 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 I um, don't know the political background everyone there, but I don't feel under pressure on the, as a member of the Jewish left, as a member of the Jewish anti-Zionist I feel I have a place to stand and argue my case. I am under pressure from witch hunters of anti-Semitism who go after anything I tweet or, or Facebook, who um, send long dossiers of what I've written to the Labour Party in order to get them disciplined. Yes, I'm under pressure from them, but they're my enemy. I expect to be under pressure from them. You know, from, from Nick, we talked about Riddler. I didn't hear about Riddler. I heard Manichaeanism. I didn't hear a journalist. I heard a cartoonist. So if I done that? Um, that there are bits of the left that I find distasteful and have as little to do with as possible. I, no fan of George Galloway, I haven't been for a very long time. But I'm really worried by a discourse, and I've been spending this afternoon writing about the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, to find a definition of anti-Semitism that expands its domain so widely and so loosely as to make it all-embracing and therefore hides anti-Semitism and excuse anti-Semitism. Because if everything is anti-Semitic, Nothing is anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitism is a real problem that we have to confront. It's not the biggest problem to confront this. Compared with Islamophobia in this country at the moment, it's trivial. And yet, the government adopts a multi-page definition of anti-Semitism while being silent about a very complex phenomenon of Islamophobia. And we have to understand why they are doing that. Now, I was at the launch of the Chakrabarti report, which I think was a very interesting report. Claudia places, but very interesting. And Shami correctly placed anti-Semitism in the context of racism in the Labour Party, and talked, although not using the term, about the institutional racism of the Labour Party. There were people from the Zionist background in the audience who seemed to rebel against the fact that Shami contested anti-Semitism, and that she wasn't putting anti-Semitism on a pedestal, a special place, where nothing else could touch you. And so we got the hysteria of Ruth Smith. No one had heard of Ruth Smith beyond her constituency before that day. We've all heard about it since. As she walked out the room, after someone criticized her, not for being Jewish, she didn't do that. Mark didn't know she was Jewish. He didn't mention Jewishness at all in what he said. He talked about a Labour Party politician colluding with journalists. Well, that's actually a commonplace anyway. Okay, these are um, questions for... Sorry, but no, I mean, this is... Sorry. No. We, we need to have this space because we, I've been introduced, and my colleagues have been introduced by Nick from there, and we have to have a chance to respond. 
Sorry, so how have I introduced you? I talk you by saying that I don't care about feminism, that I don't care about homophobia, that I excuse all sorts of prejudice no, no. if it doesn't fit in with my narrow definition of supporting the no, 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 Yes, you did say that, Nick, and I, 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 I didn't interrupt you. Please, please come and sit up here, please. You're all welcome. No, no, you know, I get your point, no, I get your point, but I would like then, it's about questions, about statements. I do get your point, I would like now to, that's a question for Nick and David, and you're right to ask him questions, so let's hear it out, Nick and David. Okay, come to the question, please. The use of the Nazi analogy is very bad. It short-circuits thought as well as, as much anything else. But the use of anti-Semitism also short-circuits thought and is problematic. And why is it all right for Jews, Zionists, to talk about things being offensive, ignorant and wrong? Okay, that's but it. it's not all right for me to object when I'm called a kappa. Why, why, am I, why are they allowed to call me a capo, which I find deeply offensive? Okay. Yet if I say anything at all mildly critical of Israel, we'll call you okay. a no. I will show you the tweets. I will show you the Facebook. Wait, wait a second. Wait, wait a second. No, I didn't say, no, I didn't say, I didn't say anyone here did. Okay, I'm let's ask very, very Nick. Um, this is a question for Nick. Nick, would you like to... Look, I mean, my point and was... And then the next question is over there. Uh, my point was simply this was that if you buy into uh, what I call uh, Occidentalist ideology of a post-socialist, post-Marxist left, a left, left really without much of a programme, uh, inherited the legacy of socialism and communism, if you buy into that Occidentalism and take on an ally with, say, the Muslim Brotherhood as uh, Stop the War... Galloway, Corbyn have done. You might be, I'm sure you are, sir, absolutely in, against homophobia in Britain, absolutely in favour of women's rights. The record shows, if not you personally, I'm sure you're there with Southall Black Sisters uh, protesting against the oppression of, of women in ethnic minority communities. I'm sure you march along Peter, Peter Tackler when he gets built, beaten up for protesting against attacks on gay Muslims. Not you, but the left as a whole has a huge, huge problem because it cannot show solidarity with its natural allies. That's not solely because it's taken on anti-Semitic tropes. It's because the anti-Semitic tropes come part of a whole package of third-worldism, which mean, which mean that you cannot be proper socialists, you cannot be proper liberals, you cannot be proper feminists. In a way, you end up a bit like our racist ancestors who say... You, rights are all very well for white-skinned people, but not for brown-skinned people. But instead of justifying in language of imperialism, you justify it in language of, of, of cultural relativism. That's, that's, that was my sole point. And I think any fair-minded <coughs> reader of left-wing articles, observer of left-wing politicians, would say that point is at least arguable. Okay. Forgive yeah, me if that's kind of over there. Yeah. <coughs> my, my question is for Professor Feldman and prompted by your reference to your Pakistani friend and his uh, uh, views about Israeli policy. Uh, I want to ask you about this huge paradox of the last years of British imperialism that the two nations created by the British 
in their wake were Pakistan and Israel. Now, for Pakistanis, the comparison is deeply problematic. They don't like to make any comparison to be made with the, with the creation of, of Israel. Um, my question to you really is, is the same dilemma apparent among Israelis? I mean, Israelis are very active, was from the start, a very active left. In Pakistan, the, the creation of Pakistan owed nothing to the left. And uh, since independence, the left more or less exported to England in the shape of Tariq Ali. You know, there's no existence in, in Pakistan. But uh, two very different circumstances, very different states, both harking back to partition of Ireland, which is a different yeah. circumstances altogether. But my question is, is this a dilemma for, uh, is the comparison a dilemma for the Israelis? I know it is in Pakistan. David. Um. I don't think um, Indra, uh, I don't think Pakistan, to my knowledge, Pakistan does not loom large in the mental imaginary of Israelis. I think um, India does as a place to go of, uh, um, 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 after their turn in the army. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I think... They call them Hindus. I'm sorry, yes. Um, I think that to take a kernel from what you said, I think that one can though draw a line um, in British in, in, the, in the practice of partition uh, in British policy making and the way in which that in in um, in um, Ireland, in Palestine and in India and indeed in Cyprus, um, 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 and, 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 and the way in which that has shaped the world in which we live now. There's a question over there, yeah? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, my, my question is really, I suppose, to all the panelists, um, because in this discussion, it seems that Israel is, is static. It's not moving. Whereas since at least 1984, we've had successively uh, right-wing governments in Israel, and at least since 2001, there hasn't been a left-wing government in Israel. So, certainly since 2009, each iteration of the government that has come to power has become increasingly, increasingly far-right. Mm -hmm. Now, how how do you conceive, uh, say, the left in Europe or North America, relating to that fact that that um, even the Labour Party in Israel has being dragged to the right. So if you look at some of the statements of it's currently the Isaac Herzog, but also Shelly Yachomovich mm -hmm. in the 2013 election did not uh, adopted some of the same discourses of the Israeli right, of the Zionist right, let's call it. Uh, so how is the left supposed to deal with this reality when in Israel the society, the politics is moving ever more right? Um, yeah. Who wants to come in? Well, Maybe. Um, I'd say two things. I think you pinpoint something which is a very important part of the dynamic that we're talking about. And another way in which one might think about that is the response in the social democratic left in Europe, whether it was correct or not, to the Oslo Accords the optimism that accompanied the Accords, because people imagine, uh, yes, the Israel that we loved has come back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, uh, so how 
how contingent in that sense um, have been the attitudes on the European left to Israel. Um, my prediction, as it were, um, in response to what you're saying, is that the longer the current drift in Israel mm -hmm. in Israeli politics continues, the longer the occupation continues, the longer um, illiberal aspects of the Israeli polity come to the fore, um, the, the greater pressure, shall we put it, will be placed on those in the European left who want to hang on to the, onto the hope of a two-state solution. In other words, as Israel drifts away from the reality, uh, from the possibility of two states, so too will the political left in Europe. Christina, you want to come in? Um, I completely agree with what you're saying. I just also wanted to point out something, maybe it goes more back historically also, but you used the, 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 the notion of uh, Israel as a social democratic utopia. And I think that is very important because sometimes I think that, um, well, at least maybe the British left is better informed about what is going on in Israel, but at least in Switzerland, uh, I sometimes do think, and this is what we were talking about before also, whether that they talk, that some left-wing activists at least seem to talk more about general problems or problems of the West uh, from an Occidentalist per perspective than about Israel, when they talk about actually about Israel. So sometimes I also wonder you know, to, to what degree are they really informed about what is going on? Do they really read the newspapers and different newspapers? And it's very hard to, you know, because it evolves so much all, all the time, uh, politics in Israel. Um, it's very hard to, to keep up uh, this information level and I sometimes wonder whether they really do that. So I think a lot of it is also projection and uh, what, they, what they think that is going on. And uh, so sometimes I wonder like how much impact actually what is actually happening is or has on, on the thinking of, of the left. Yeah, what, what I find very interesting is that we are kind of reinstating uh, a typical structure of this debate. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two layers that uh, constantly mix uh, all, and they mix a reality, but analytically we have to divide them. So uh, some talk more of a po uh, position to uh, criticize the left for policies like anti-Semitic tendencies or reactionary tendencies. Others judge the the problem or the theme of our debate more from uh, what we may say call realpolitik, so the from what's really going on on the ground, as it is always called, mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly uh, one of the reasons uh, the or the the ontological problems that come up here is one of the reasons uh, that explains uh, or that is part of the explanation of the state of this debate, because you whatever perspective you take, one of which of the frames you choose um, has, has an impact and both often do not fit. Just to give you one example that uh, some, someone in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, an, an actor over there, may be a freedom, freedom fighter and he may, for whatever reason, also subscribe to anti-Semitic um, ideology somehow. 
maybe an, a full-fledged anti-Semite, maybe someone who kind of thinks, well, my enemy's uh, uh, enemy is my friend. So whatever the reason is, but there are two different uh, ways to look at things, and in this conflict, they just don't fit. It's often very hard to be mm. to be against anti-Semitism and to be against oppression, and this is what is a problem for political agency. Mm. So some resolve this problem, this structural antagonism, by reducing complexity, a kind of dissonance reduction. So they, they solve the problem by deciding 100% for one side and by just putting all those ambiguities aside. And this is also a problem related again to identity. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because it shouldn't be. In theory, yeah. it shouldn't be a problem. In theory, you should be, it should be perfectly possible to be hugely against Israel's occupation of the yeah, West Bank. Exactly. Reason government saying, and utterly against Hamas as a uh, ultra theocratic right wing, anti democratic movement. In practice, people find find it very very hard, yeah. and it's probably due to what David was saying about identity politics, that which is not just. We, we, I mean, we also talk about class politics as if class wasn't an identity as well. But leaving that aside, is is destroying liberalism mm. uh, uh, across the world. I mean, uh, uh, from the left and the right, you know, uh, from, from Trump through to people in university banning speakers they don't like. You know, it is, it is that type of universal human rights liberalism that says, well, you know, yeah, obviously, you're against West Bank, you're against what Hamas does, you're against what Syria does. Well, of course you do, you believe in universal human rights. And to me, that sounds absolutely natural, but in practice, and I think you're right, in but practice, David, people find it, with every passing year, it gets harder and harder to do. And David mentioned the problem when uh, you talked about the uh, position of Jews towards Israel. Within this relation, we've got all the dimensions of the conflict. The, uh, it is an old anti-Semitic uh, stereotype that Jews are disloyal to uh, the countries where they're living in. Mm -hmm. So. Um, having this notion of uh, the Jews are always with Israel uh, can be very problematic depending on uh, how you formulate it. But on the other hand, of course, you have very strong ties between Jewish, uh, between many Jewish organizations and the state of Israel, and often they uh, um, are amongst the first to defend Israel. So this is where the, the full problem is, uh, and if you if you don't see the complexity that arises here. This is where, well, where our discourse is. Maybe one last question from the audience. Yes, you had a question? Yes. Well, you, you sort of partly uh, spoke to, to the point, and that was really uh, with sort of um, Israeli politics becoming more and more complex and right-wing, um, I think it probably is more and more difficult to say that disproportionate focus on Israel, as opposed to other causes, other oppressions, other problematic regimes, is in itself evidence for anti-Semitism. Um, I think it is fair to say that many people are genuinely disillusioned hmm. with the politics, and um, quite justifiably, uh, uh, attention is drawn to to that fact. And my question, therefore, really was: if 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 you agree that perhaps the disproportionate attention is not the acid test, then what is, and, and I think you really sort of got to the point, it's really sort of who do you call your friends um, 
yeah. alongside criticizing Israel. Yeah. And, and really, that was my question. Is that a valid asset test, or if you really sort of need to um, home in on, on the one question sort of between can I trust you or can't I, um, is it that point, is it not who you criticize but who you side with? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I, I think, I mean, look, perhaps I've got a, uh, uh, almost literally purposes, developed a uh, rose-tinted view of the left of the past. But I do think that the question of solidarity is absolutely crucial. And that solidarity should include with Israelis, you know, friends of mine on Haaretz, who are now a very beleaguered minority. I mean, Gaza, what Hamas did in Gaza when, you know, Israel did what the world wants to do. It ceded land for peace and Hamas took over. It just cut the legs off the Israeli left. It hasn't really existed since then. Um, uh, but, you know, that, that to me is a crucial, crucial question. Who are your friends? Uh, who are your allies? Because that defines you as well as, as well as them. But I have to say, I've been banging on about this for years and years and years, and uh, I don't think I'm making many converts. And perhaps my naive and optimistic view of what the left used to be, I think, have to consign to dust and history. There's another question there. So I've got a question from the left-wing Israeli perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I worked in the Israeli political system for, for a few years, then I came to LSC, then I worked in a British parliamentary system mm -hmm. for a Jewish MP. So I kind of uh, have the, the whole view. I think there is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is... <laughs> I agree with what you said, uh, Professor Feldman, that people here have a, um, a huge problem with the word, with the concept of Zionism, and no one, s students and MPs alike, no one under really understands the, 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 the difference between being a Zionist and not being a Zionist. And with that, there's also a, um, a blurring of the line between settlements and the rest of Israel. Now, coming from Israel, I can tell you that Corbyn is Bibi's best friend. He's his biggest ally because when Corbyn and his likes blur this line between, between uh, 67 Israel and the territories, then Bibi can say, you see, it's not about the territories, it's about them hating us as Jews. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is there any appreciation among the British politicians, British journalists, uh, about uh, their part in the Israeli political discourse, things that they say here are extremely important within the Israeli context because it's being used by the right wing. Do they even think about these things? Who wants to answer question? They are mostly Very good. I don't think... Uh, I mean, I say two things. One, in, in answer to your question, but, but, but something else as well, which uh, uh, your question implicitly raised. I don't think um, British polit politicians on the whole uh, uh, care, uh, care about the, uh, their Israeli audience when they speak. No. Mm -hmm. But I think what you said... Uh, about 48 and 67 um, is, um, is um, a part of the problem. Um, I think were there Palestinians in this audience, 
they would want to, regardless of where they stand on one state and two states, m many Palestinians would want some recognition of the, of, of, of the trauma of, and of the disaster of 48. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the, so going back to what you were saying about some of the difficulty of talking about, of getting a terminology that will talk about Zionism, is actually, uh, even for those who want to support the continuing existence of the State of Israel, the necessity of acknowledging what happened in 1948. And in some of the, the um, very crude um, and unsophisticated anti-Zionism are sort of, and so, and the, and in those statements which you say help build support for the current Israeli government, I'm sure they do, are also attempts, um, however inadequate, to acknowledge and recognize what happened in 48, and that's part of the problem and the difficulty with which we grapple. Jane, last question. Final. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for a great sort of lecture series. Um, my question really is addressed to, to you, Nick, kind of on the back of what you said to this gentleman in front. You said, how long do you think it will take for the Jews on the left in Britain to abandon the left? And the elephant in the room here is France and how the Jews in France are being um, coached, if you like, by representatives within Mahindra Pepper's group, and how they, many of the Jews in France have moved from the left over to the right. And I wondered how you saw that evolving, either in France, and if you thought that it would be replicated here. And the second part of the same question, is at the beginning, you, your introduction was you referred to the fascistic anti-Trefusar themes that were going unchallenged. Hmm. And I wondered if Trefus was now in 2017, given what has happened in France, in the UK, in the left, in Germany, with Israel, whether that isn't an out-of-date benchmark. Well, um, let's take it from the top. Uh, the elephant in the room in France is that Jews are once again being murdered in Europe simply for being Jews. People say that the kind of unreality here, the reality on the grounds in Israel, there is a reality here in Europe, of in, uh, in Brussels, in, uh, you know, it's almost now standard. That when there's Islamist attack, they will blow up a local, they'll go for a local satirist or critic of Islam, then just kill any Jews they can find in a supermarket or synagogue. So that's the reality. There is a reality that an awful lot of French Jews are coming to London because, rightly or wrongly, they feel that Islamist anti Semitism has got too dangerous in France. So that's the reality. Now, the reason I refer to uh, anti-Dreyfardism, to fascism, is, is this. Is that when you have people, particularly people who claim to be 
the heirs of the Enlightenment, suddenly going into talk of global conspiracies, or suddenly using, and this is to answer your question, I don't think many people in Britain realise that Israel's a tiny nation. Uh, certainly in my world, they think of Israel as this vast, vast thing. I was looking at a Labour Party forum that had some technical problems, and they would say, and people would say, ah, oh, but you know the Zionists, they, they, they are brilliant hackers. You know? Um, you know, I don't think they think that. But when you get that, I think, first of all, any form of racism is wrong. I think, second, this is a sign of that movement's degeneration. I think, third, it means that the left should not be doing what is its job right now, that is, encouraging and defending liberal and feminist Muslims instead of pandering to the religious conservatives, which is what they have done led by the Labour Party. And finally, I think it's going to matter, there's going to be another reality on the ground, we will see. You will have, I mean, David and I were gloating before we came on about, you know, how we are complete connoisseurs of the absurdities of left-wing history and talk about, you know, what happened and gentleman here quite happily brings up the Slansky trial and we're going, fantastic. That is well, but I did warn him before we came down here, most people think us mad. But our mad world is now leading the British opposition. Our mad world is now giving the Conservative Party something that has never happened in my lifetime, an absolute free run. Our mad world is meaning the right is the only force that matters in English politics, and that is going to pull Britain out of the European Union on the worst terms for Britain and from, and I think it will hurt the EU as well. So always be careful about saying, oh, these things from the past, it's Dreyfusard, anti Dreyfusard, so who cares about that? The past has a habit of leaping up and punching you in the face every now and again, it's about to do it to us now. I mean, this brings you. This brings me. This this comment by Nick brings me really to 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 the end of our panel. I mean, I would like to bring it to a close and take on and put into a very last question. Nick comments and refer to David's um, comment about cray of pain. We had a very intense discussion tonight, and sometimes also quite painful from very different points of view left, left shoes, right, whatever. And I have the feeling that one aspect which makes the debate quite painful is that we just don't have the tradition to look critically at this rather complicated relationship between the left, the Jews, and Israel. And my, my question is, what is really, what kind of debates are really missing here? from a historical point of view and from a theoretical point of view, what we have to do. And I think, again, these missing questions are probably quite different in the UK or in Germany or Switzerland. So how do you see this? So what is your last final comment, if I may say so? Let's start with Peter. Okay, thanks a lot for this question, which allows me uh, for, sure. for an hour or so <laughs> to talk. Three sentences. I think what what uh, what is really lacking, or what what we need much more, is the active recognition of different layers in the conflict that uh, that are always mixed up. That means a recognition of different forms of victimization that 
people or collectives can be victims of one form of oppression and can be oppressors on the other hand. We need to differentiate between motivations, materialization and reception, for example. So people may use anti-Semitic vocabulary without being intentional anti-Semites, but at least being you know, uh, insensitive or stupid or whatever, uh, apart from the real anti-Semites. Um, we see that different backgrounds form political ideas and they shape ideas, give ideas directions, they enable discussions but also go along with blind spots. And what I think is the most important that would help us with some self-reflex, uh, yeah, to, to be more self-reflexive, is to see the, um, the identity politics becoming radical identification and over-identification in the end. We've, we always have this in left-wing politics, which is really meant as something good. Um, in the moment when there's conflict and you identify with one side, there's always a tendency to dehumanize the other. And we've seen this in the radical um, identification of German left-wingers with Israel. We've seen this in the identification with Muslims here, which led to ignorance uh, in all other questions. I mean, you, you said that when the uh, Respect Party, for example, which was officially against homophobia all the time, but they never mentioned it uh, when being when being canvassing and so on. So, uh, but if we are aware of all the, these levels, and if we always discussed things with respect to all these different layers and their contradictions, we could be much further. But uh, politics are not about differentiation, I'm afraid. David, well, I think. Um, the, the left needs to change and Jews need to change, or many, many on the left need to change and many Jews need to change. Um, in the immediate post-war period, one of the legacies of the Holocaust was that anti-Semitism and the Holocaust were a became a prism for understanding other forms of racism, and that um, characterised certainly the literature on racism and, and campaigns against racism in Britain in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, Increasingly, over the last 50 years, the, those alliances have been broken, and we've heard a lot about that in different ways. And as a result, many of the left um, have a tin ear when it comes to anti-Jewish racism. Because Jews are white, um, predominantly in this country affluent, and, with, um, and uh, with an affinity for a powerful economic and military state, in the, the, the Middle East, people on the left find it very difficult to identify anti-Jewish racism when it arises. And it would be good if that changed. Um, on the other side, um, it would be good if Jews um, understood that by and large they are not victims anymore, that they are indeed predominantly affluent, middle class, and support a powerful state in the Middle East, and that um, a power has to be exercised with responsibility and, and ethically as well. Christina? Well, I basically agree with what has been said already. <laughs> um, I think I can keep it very short. The, the left has to think about what it is to be left. I mean, what is left of the left, or however you, you want to frame it, what, what are the leg legacies the left is influenced by, who, who are, we, are we siding with, who are we, are we criticizing, 
And yeah, it's really, I mean, this is the problem. Here I agree with you about the, this turning point of 1989. Uh, since 1989, the, the left has had a huge uh, identification problem and should really talk more about itself than about uh, Jews or Palestinians or Israel or whatever. It's, uh, as I was saying, I think most of these discussions are projections of one's own problems or one's own searching for yeah, the, the, the right leftist position uh, since this time. So I think the left should think more about itself. Nick? If you, if you look, you won't be, if you are left-wing, of course, you might not be. Uh, it was a mistake for me to assume it. Um, if you look at left-wing ideas, you can see they should be very 20th century. Marxism's gone. Socialism's gone. Social democracy is looking very, very weak. Now, with the crisis in the European Union, with Trump, with Brexit, liberalism is, suddenly feels rather weak against uh, identity politics of left and right. And I do think... Uh, people on the left need to worry that actually that this might all be a sort of 20th century blip and the future will be one party which is essentially globalist, you know, George Osborne style party and another party which is ethnic nationalist. That will be a new division in politics between if you like the free market right and the nationalist right and liberals leftists won't even get a look in. Okay. Wow, that's it for tonight. Well, yeah. Thanks a lot to my panelists and thanks a lot for your patience. And we are still some time to continue our discussion with a glass of wine on oh, over there, right, Andreas? Yeah, in the library. In the library, I'm afraid uh, you have discussed your way out of your wine. Uh, I have promised the staff because we have the next event very early tomorrow morning, and they have a long travel home and have to change the room again for tomorrow. But we close the house at nine. Uh, I'm afraid so. Uh, but thank you very much, everyone, and uh, Daniel for the, uh, conducting me so well and all the contributors. So, uh, wine is in the, in the library. Yeah.